everyone lies. And so it's really important to understand what motivates someone to lie. If you want to get to the truth, you have to understand their motivation. The way I break it up is there are high stakes lies and low stakes lies. What do they look for to see if somebody's really lying? So that's a really good question. Okay, you were just listening to Pamela Meyer. She is one of the foremost experts in deception detection, lie spotting. In fact, she wrote the book, Lie Spotting. You may have heard her. She did one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. In fact, it was one of the top 10 most popular TED Talks. She's an author. She has an MBA from Harvard. She has an MA in public policy, and she's really into the research on this. And I want to talk to you about this right now because it is really relevant. Everybody lies. You're going to hear us talk about that. Even babies lie. Did you know that? Babies lie. Here's what I mean. They'll wait until you get in the room to cry. Now, that means they're doing that to manipulate you, and that's a lie. So everybody lies. Now, the reason this is so relevant today is because you hear all of this about fake news, and you hear two versions of the news. Listen, there aren't versions of the truth. Somebody's lying and somebody's telling the truth. And I want you to be able to pick out which is which. Right now, big story in the news, Jesse Smollett. Was he a victim of a hate crime or was he not? As you listen to this podcast, you're going to pick up some skills that I think you're going to be able to go look at what has been said by him, things that have been written that are quoting him, things that he's looked into the camera and said, and make up your own mind about whether he's telling the truth or whether he's not. And when you get through hearing what we're going to talk about, I don't think it's going to be a close call. I'm going to let you make up your own mind. But today we're talking about deception detection. You're going to use it watching the news. You're going to use it in making up your mind about a story as high profile as Jesse Smollett. And then you're going to use it in your everyday life. This is one of those podcasts that's going to change the way you interact with everybody in your life. There's going to be a whole lot on the website. Listen with both ears because this one's going to make a difference. We're going to start in less than 60 seconds. And tomorrow, be sure and tune in to Dr. Phil because we are doing a deep dive on Jesse Smollett. So check your local listings for Dr. Phil because we've got the investigators. We've got people close to the case, investigative reporters. We're going to tell you what's what. And I'm going to show you how I use my lie detection skills tomorrow, Dr. Phil. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Well, thanks for doing this. As I said when we were getting ready, I've I've studied your area a lot and studied what you've written a lot because I was a litigation consultant back when I had a real job before I did this. And the context in which I did it was in trial work because I prepared witnesses for trial and then attended trial all the time. And we were always focused on, A, reading the jury 
and also focusing on the other side's witnesses and trying to advise the lawyers as to where they were telling the truth and whether they weren't and where to bear down and focus on and all of that. I want people to have the benefit of all of your knowledge because the average person, I think, has no idea how much lying goes on and how able they are to be able to spot that. So how much do people lie? Well, we lie a lot. I mean, some studies say we lie up to 200 times a day. Some studies say we lie only five times a day. The way I break it up is there are high stakes lies and low stakes lies. And so we navigate social dignity all day long with white lies. Honey, you don't look fat in that. You know, that's okay. Or, you know, oh, I'm sorry. I just fished that email out of my spam folder. Not a problem. The high stakes lies are less common, but they're very high stakes and they're significant. So lies like you know, that affect maybe who to marry or what house to buy or who to go to work with and so forth. Those are very high stakes lies that we have to really avoid. What motivates people to lie? Is there a list of things that cause people to lie? Because you say people lie, you say as many as 200 times a day, and we'll break that down in a minute and talk about high stake and low stakes. But what are the motivators? What cause people to lie? First of all, everyone lies. And so it's really important to understand what motivates someone to lie. If you want to get to the truth, you have to understand their motivation. For the most part, we lie to avoid conflict. We lie sometimes to manipulate someone, to have power over someone. We lie to gain the admiration of others. We lie oftentimes to protect privacy. So not all lies are necessarily for terrible reasons. There are times when somebody will lie simply to gain power over another person or to manipulate the situation. But they're kind of offensive and defensive lies, and not all of them are terrible. You know, one of the things that I have focused on in, from a psychological standpoint is empathy, warmth, and genuineness. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference between being genuine and being cruel. For example, a guy goes up to a girl in a club and says, would you like to dance? She can say, no, that's genuine. She doesn't want to dance. Or she could give a fulsome answer and say, I wouldn't dance with you in a hundred years if you were the last (laughs) man on earth. You smell funny. You look funny. I wouldn't be seen with you. I would drop dead first. That's also the truth. But is that a lie by omission to leave all of that out? No, not at all. I mean, you're having a dinner party and the one person who sucks all the air out of the room and dominates the whole thing calls you up and says, I heard you're having a dinner party. Oh, I'm so sorry. I must have the wrong email address. You still got to probably invite them to the dinner party. So there's, there's social dignity and there's appropriate boundaries in the world. And honestly, a lot of people use the excuse of authenticity as a way to act in very aggressive ways towards each other. And I don't think it's helpful to anybody. Yeah, that's an interesting term, social dignity. What do you mean by that? Well, I love that. (laughs) You know, everyone's trying to make their way in the world and we all make mistakes and we all have conflicts and it's a complicated world. And sometimes you have a bad day. Sometimes you have a good day. It's sort of like driving on the highway. You have to kind of navigate around the challenges. And oftentimes that requires a slight bit of fabrication in order to do that. It does help people's feelings, right? You're protecting their feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I get it. I mean, I've been bald since I was 12. I read a study the other day that said 78% of men would cut a body part off rather than be bald. (laughs) 
And I have people say, oh, listen, I get being bald. That wouldn't bother me at all. I'm thinking, no, I read a study that said 78% of you would cut something off before you would be bald. Yeah, no, I don't lie to me. I wrote down some of the things that you said that I have quoted so many times, and I've just been dying to ask you about these things. You say men lie eight times more about themselves, whereas women lie to protect others. Yeah, there's some science around that. I mean, men, you know, You've just met somebody, they were on match.com or a dating service. You're on your first date. He says, oh yeah, I was VP of sales at that company. Well, he may have been director of sales or manager of sales. They oftentimes do it for position. They're presenting themselves a little bit higher up than they really were. Women oftentimes will protect other people's feelings and they'll try to avoid conflict. But we do lie with equal frequency. Yeah. You you mentioned puffing up. When people lie on resumes and that sort of thing where they kind of fluff things up. Do people expect to get caught or do you think they think they're going to get away with it? So this is an interesting question. There is a small percentage of people for whom you have the, what were you thinking question? Like, of course, you're a C-suite executive. You're going to go through an executive search firm. Why on earth did you say you were CFO when you weren't? So that's a small percentage of people where there's really a disconnect between reality and what one could expect. For the most part, though, I think people just fabricate a little bit to boost themselves up a little bit. You know, one study was done where they looked, I think it was career builder who did the study. They looked at fabrication in resumes. And do you know what one of the most common resume lies was claiming to be a member of the Kennedy family. You're so, kidding. No. so I mean, <laughs> what were they thinking? Why would you want to be a member of the <laughs> know, Kennedy exactly. family? Exactly. Let's right. think well, Quiddick, let's think, uh, <laughs> well, you uh, get the interview. Yeah. <laughs> I always hear people say, particularly to their teenagers, why do you lie? You never get away with it. Isn't the truth that they get away with it most of the time? I mean, people don't lie if they're not getting away with it, right? That's true. But particularly with teenagers, and you know this, of course, from your show, we do so much to avoid embarrassment. We will go to such lengths to avoid being confronted. And particularly now when we live in a digital world where people aren't used to being confronted in person will go to any length. So we see that quite a bit. Yeah. There's a saying in Texas for every rat you see, there's 50 you don't. If I catch somebody in a lie, and we also know that the number one predictor of future behavior is not some psychological test. It's not an MMPI. It's not a Rorschach. It's not any of those tests. I always had people asking me the question, and I would say, look, if you want to know if this candidate's going to steal from you, the best thing you can do is get a really good history. The best predictor, if they stole from the last person they worked for, that's the best predictor of whether they're going to steal from you or not. Not some test. I always talk to people, and if they're lying to me about one thing or two things or three things, I always assume there's 50 things I'm not seeing that they're lying about. And I just don't understand why people assume that the only lie they catch them in is the only lie they've told. Well, you know, it even goes deeper than that, because there's studies out there that show that people who start cheating in high school are much more likely to be fraudulent later on in life. Really? So we have to get it earlier and earlier and earlier. You're absolutely right. I mean, where there's smoke, there's fire usually. Yeah, I always think sometimes that parents teach their kids to lie because they put them in a position that they have to lie. It's like 
you're going to tell me what I want to hear or your whole world's going to turn to hell. So they teach them to tell them what they want to hear. And so they've learned, okay, I can't avoid accountability if I'll tell you a white lie. And then it goes with them from there on. What do you think is, I'm not going to give you a test here. You may be testing me now, who knows. But with what accuracy can you spot a lie? If you're really trained in this, somebody you yourself or somebody you've trained to really look for the clusters, with what accuracy can you spot if somebody is truly weaving a story? So we know that with training, someone who's at like 54% accurate can actually get to about 90% accurate if they're trained well. But I don't recommend that. I actually think even if you're the best human lie detector on earth, you should still be combining that with getting your facts and really confirming sources, going back to original sources, doing your research, talking to everybody that you can. Because the last thing you want to do is make the wrong assumption. Right. So, but you can, you can get pretty accurate. I mean, you can learn to observe facial microexpressions, look at people's verbal and nonverbal expressions, raise the cognitive load, as we say on someone, as you're asking them a hard question, so that they start to show those tells a little yeah. bit more extensively. So let's talk to our listeners about... And I always talk about Betty in Idaho as kind of the average American. That's my idea of average Joe, average American. What can people use to spot a lie if they're talking to a salesman, if they're talking to a coworker, God forbid they're suspicious of their spouse, whatever. What are the tells? What do they look for to see if somebody's really lying? Well, first of all, if it's someone they're working with, they're starting out in the right place because you have to, as you know, baseline someone first. You got to get, how are you? How was your weekend? Did you go shopping? What are you doing? You got to get a sense of their vocal tone, the cadence of their voice, their posture, their physical gestures. So you have to get someone's norm so you have a reliable reference point for measuring it later. So you always baseline someone, you get the norm first if it's a salesman or if it's someone that you don't know. If it's someone you know well, you know their baseline. You even know their go-to phrase when they lie. Right. But beyond that, there are two ways to do it. One is to ask a whole bunch of open-ended questions. Don't threaten the person at all and just let them start talking. And you can observe verbal and nonverbal indicators. Clearly on the verbal side, the ones that we're most familiar with that you hear all the time are when someone says, you know, to tell you the truth in all honesty, this house I'm trying to sell you. Did the basement flood? Let me think about that one more time. Repeating the question. I know it didn't flood. OK, you're not buying that house. Yeah. And so if someone's repeating the question, offering up qualifying language, using perhaps what we say distancing language, like Bill Clinton said, I didn't have sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, narrowing the field a little bit. I didn't take 20 from that drawer, not, hey, I never stole anything in my life. Using maybe soft replacement language. Oftentimes law enforcement interviews a potential rapist. He's going to say, I didn't touch that woman. Not, I didn't rape that woman. They use soft replacement language. Normally though, what I find most effective on the verbal side, because all that's pretty hard to track if you're living out in the middle of, you know, you're doing your job every day and you're busy. And you, I don't know if that was distancing language or not. That's right. pretty hard to track. Here's the shortcut. Did the person across the table from you that you're asking questions of just subtly shift from very cooperatively providing you with information to what we call convince mode? Are they all of a sudden starting to try to persuade you of their truthfulness, bolster their character in some way? But I'm a good person. I went to a good school. 
I'm honest. I go to church every Sunday when they try to bolster their character and they're starting to plead and convince you. And before that, they were just providing you with information. That's a pretty good flash and yellow light. Yeah, they start making convincing statements. Exactly. Anybody will tell, everybody will tell you. Right. I give more money than was stolen. I donate more money than was taken. Exactly. Yeah. So I say, forget all those indicators. It's, you do need to find two or three on the verbal side, two or three on the nonverbal side. But throw all that out for a minute and ask yourself, is that person just trying to convince you? Are yeah. they starting to plead more and more desperately? That's a red light. Yeah. Is it an indicator that you look at if somebody, if you ask them, what do you think should happen to a person that's done this? if they mitigate the consequences? Very much so. So there are a bunch of questions you can ask that are kind of telltale questions that'll provoke somebody and they'll help you get to the truth. And if you say, what should happen to whoever deflated those footballs, Tom Brady? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If you say, what should happen to whoever stole that computer? The guilty person's going to say, I I don't know. It's not my job to say. They're going to look down. Maybe probation. I don't know. The honest person's going to say, you kidding? Kick them out of the game. Fire them. Bring in law enforcement. Let's get to the truth. So strict punishment is typically recommended by the truthful person. Yeah. And if they're guilty, they're going to say, well, you know, they're going to waffle around. So when you watch somebody like Tom Brady, for example, give the interview where he's talking about that, was he telling the truth? He was asked who should be held accountable. And he said, you know what? It's not my job to say. He was asked what happened during that very first press conference. And I think he said the word, well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not really not sure. I think it was 12 times within the first 17 minutes or something like that. So we don't know. You'd have to go back and actually confirm the facts and read the report very carefully and find those cell phones that were destroyed. So we don't know for sure, but he certainly threw off some indicators. Yeah, he threw some indicators. And that's exactly what we we don't know. But if you've got a scorecard, there were certainly some indicators on that side. Now, speaking of these verbal signs, and I'm not going to ask you your politics. I'm not even going to ask you certainly how you vote or would vote. That would be rude. But we had recently a big Senate hearing and we had an alleged victim telling her story and a candidate for the Supreme Court, a nominee for the Supreme Court telling his story. Was either side throwing off indicators in a big way? So you have to be very careful when you look at this, because I think Christine was more credible. And I think Brett Kavanaugh was less credible. And certainly he was throwing off some very complicated indicators that we can talk about. But I think it's a perfect example of where you can't rely on just your impression of someone because we don't know. We're stuck now with two people who both are telling a story. Both might be credible. Both might have shreds of facts associated with them. And we don't have the facts. And so on the one hand, it's great to look at people when they're you know, fresh in front of the lights and answering questions, they're conditioned to answer over and over again. On the other hand, we really don't have the facts. That said, I can tell you that Brett Kavanaugh in particular was an extreme convincer, pleader, boaster, bolsterer. So he was doing everything he could to bolster his image of honesty and a good man, huge integrity. He was in a very extreme version of convinced mode. 
he seemed extraordinarily angry about being wrongly co- accused, but he also seemed coached to me. And so, you know, we call this a conditioned witness. You know this from law enforcement. Right. And so you, you really have to take someone like that out of the bright lights and into an interrogation room or an interview room and look at the facts and spend another seven, eight hours with them to really get to the truth. And I don't think that that hearing was a valid way to analyze them. No, I'm not sure he wrote that statement. And But isn't it true that if someone is falsely accused of any crime, aren't they likely, and this gets into the psychology of it, but aren't they likely to be indignant about that from day one, minute one? Is there any time during the arc of a story that a wrongly accused person is not going to be upset about being wrongly accused? There will be times, like every case, as you know, is completely different because sometimes there will be something they're very embarrassed about embedded in the story. There could be complicating facts they don't want to go public with. So yes, they will be pissed off from beginning to end, but you never know the nuances of what's causing somebody to be pissed off. And it may not be the fact that they're wrongly accused. It can always be something else. So you got to get down to the truth no matter what. You know, the thing with, Brett Kavanaugh that I thought, just to go back to that for one minute, that I thought was the most interesting couple things. One, he didn't watch Christine's testimony. Now, if you've been wrongly accused, you are Mm going to want to watch every minute of it, especially if you're about to go out and testify. So I thought that was curious. The other thing I thought that was interesting was this, in the Fox interview, he made this very clear distinction between, on the one hand, the cringeworthy stuff we do in high school, and on the other hand, criminal behavior. And he may very well in his head separate the two and have a mindset that the two are very different. And he may very, very well in an authentic way believe that he belongs in that cringeworthy category and not in that I'm a criminal category. And he's obviously very pissed off about his family being brought into it. So there's sifted into this is some authentic anger as well, which complicates it. Yeah, that does complicate it. And I've always said the most dangerous lie is that which has a kernel of truth. Yes. That's the most dangerous lie because, I mean, it's like trying to treat a paranoid that really does have somebody after them. Yes, exactly. Because they'll throw that up in your face every time. You say, you know, listen, come on. They're not bugging your phones. You don't have listening devices in your car. Nobody is after you. And say, oh, really? What about Bill Jones? And Bill Jones really is after them. They're really trying to ruin their life. They throw that up in your face, and that ruins every opportunity you have to try to penetrate their delusional system. And when you get a lie that has a kernel of truth, and they try to, and I thought with Kavanaugh, he's in a position of trying to prove a negative. Mm -hmm. How do you prove you didn't do something Mm -hmm. versus if you're trying to prove somebody did something? That is an affirmative act where you can show something happened. It's a behavior that's measurable, has a beginning and an end, it's measurable. But trying to prove a negative is really tough. Trying to prove I didn't do something is uh, virtually impossible. It is tough. And, you know, it's actually interesting because when you think about lying, the reason we're really bad lie detectors is because we don't usually find out if someone lied or we don't find out until much later. So we have a learning curve problem. It's not like tennis where you serve a ball and you get instant feedback. The ball went out of the court. It's probably the same thing if you're a blackout drunk, right? You don't know what you didn't know. Yeah. You don't know what 
may have happened. And I'm not accusing of being a blackout drunk or even a fragmented blackout drunk, but I'm saying if you happen to be a fragmented or blackout drunk, there are probably lots of times where no one ever told you you blacked out and you don't know you did. So it's complicated. Well, I've dealt with that so many times with families I've worked with that there is a blackout drunk or drug addict and the family, they can't understand why the family is so indignant because they weren't there for all the outrageous behavior they did. Exactly. So they're like, they weren't there when they came in and peed on their living room rug. They weren't there when they totaled the car. Exactly. They weren't there when they stole grandma's sentimental ring and pawned it. And so now the family's outraged. They're like, why are y'all so upset? <laughs> they weren't there when any of that stuff happened. Exactly. Oh, jeez. I don't know. Now, tell me if this is true. You know, when I was preparing witnesses for trial and working with lawyers, there were two things that I really believed, and I, I'm curious if all this time I was doing something that just made sense to me or if it really made sense. God, I hope it's true, because I sure charged a lot of money for a lot of years. <laughs> it was not true. <laughs> two things. I always preached that we tend to believe people we like, and we tend to like people who like us. Now, Break that down for me. Is that true? We tend to believe people we like. So Jack Welch very famously said he started making good hiring decisions when he stopped paying attention to first impressions. And, you know, a lot of it is social proximity. You know, someone walks in the door and they're smiling and they're glib and they're attractive and they have, you know, there's high social proximity to you. Same race, same religion. They feel like somebody went to high school. You're going to convey a very positive bias on them. Someone walks in and they're scowling and they're nervous and they're unattractive. And by the way, the nervousness may have nothing to do with deception. It may have to do with the fact that they have social proximity that is very far from you and you're fatigued. You haven't had your Starbucks that day or whatever. You're going to convey a negative impression on them. So it's absolutely true that we are very much unconsciously drawn to people that just feel like essentially the people we went to high school with. And we have to be careful about that because oftentimes we can be blinded by that. So if we believe people we like and we like those who like us, then we believe people who are a good audience. If we think somebody likes us, we tend to believe them. So all they got to do is blow smoke up our ass and we tend to believe them. Yeah, we just live in one big happy bubble. That's a narcissist dream, right? It is. Absolutely. They can be nice to us and we go, oh, yeah, okay, I'll believe anything you tell me. Well, and it's part of the reason why we have such a fracture in our country right now between Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and liberals, because we're all living in our own bubbles completely. So it's a serious it's actually a serious issue. Yeah, it really is. And you add to that confirmation bias. And by that, I mean. When you have confirmation bias, you only listen to things that confirm your belief. And if you're presented counter evidence, it deepens your belief. It doesn't rock your belief. It deepens your belief. It's impossible to get anybody to change their position. Now, the other thing I, t- <laughs> the other thing I always convince people. That was valid revenue. <laughs> okay, good. All right. So I got, all right. Y'all heard that, right? The expert said it was true. The other thing I always said is you can buy a lot of credibility with a jury or with your audience by making a modified mea culpa 
in a non-actionable area. <laughs> so when you deny the actionable behavior, they're going to believe you. So what I would tell people is, I right, look, if you're on trial for fraud, then you can admit that you were negligent in another area. And then when you deny the fraud, they say, well, they were sure honest about being negligent. So it seems to me they said some things that were awfully unbecoming. So it seemed like they're telling the truth. So I always taught them, look, you can buy a lot of credibility if you'll make a modified mea culpa in an area you're not on trial for. So they will believe you when you deny what you are on trial for. What kind of car do you drive? Um, I've got a, well, Rolls Royce Wraith. Okay. Well, <laughs> I didn't, I was, I was going to say right. something. <laughs> well, that, I'll tell you, maybe you got upsold because that's, you know, well, you're right. The Mercedes has had some problems on the road, but <laughs> so you're right. It works in sales as well. There's no question that you can, if you signal to somebody, it, it doesn't matter how you signal really, but if you signal to somebody that you're honest and you know, it's not really honesty. What really works is signaling that you're fair because people are really looking, particularly if they're in a negotiation with you, to know that you're going to be fair. So signaling that you're honest is good. Signaling that you're fair takes you even farther yeah. down the road. Well, that was our mantra. We always said we're going to outfair the other side. Yep. In front of the jury, we're going to outfair the other side. We're not going to argue. They're going to look at us and say, those guys play fair. The Americans are forgiving. Yeah. You know, we are, and if someone does say, you know, I did this and I'm sorry and I feel terrible about it, for the most part, we all identify with that. People are mostly forgiving. And so you can go a long way with just being honest about that. Yeah, I think that's true. I wonder if it's still true in the environment we're in now. I mean, maybe it's changed, but it seems like it's always been true. So the things we've talked about in terms of verbal, we've talked about qualifying statements like narrowing the question so you can answer it, convincing statements, like not responsive to the question, just not saying I didn't take the money, just I'm a great guy. I'm the most honest person here. Ask anybody, those sort of things. And invoking um, the deity, like I swear to God. <laughs> I swear to God on my mother's grave. Yeah. I was not there. And, yep. Well, to be honest with you, as opposed to everything else you've been telling me, <laughs> Why do people do that? I mean, it seems to be even the dumbest liar with no. Okay, right, to be honest with you, what, <laughs> what, what, what have we been doing? If you're telling the truth and you've got the facts, you don't need any extra yeah. bolstering, any extra cushion. You don't need God. But, you know, a lot of it is also attitude. So someone who's lying will oftentimes just be uncooperative and petulant or belligerent, or oftentimes what we're seeing now is condescending, entitled. If you're trying to get to the bottom of things and someone's being honest, they're going to cooperate it with you. They're going to have an attitude of, hey, let's brainstorm together. Let's see what we can figure out. You say to someone, what do you think might have motivated whoever committed this crime to do it? The honest person's going to speculate with you. Guilty person oftentimes, which is very interesting, they will tell you a reason that might have motivated them. And oftentimes it is their reason. They'll say, oh, well, everyone hates the boss in this company. I don't know who stole that money, but everyone hates the boss. Well, bingo, you've just gotten way into that person's yeah. thinking. Yeah. So in law enforcement interrogators, often they do what's called theming. You know, they will offer up to someone who they suspect may have committed a crime. Lots of rationalizations. They may be telling themselves for why they did it. Oh, she sure was asking for it, wasn't she? Or whatever. And they'll keep asking them 
They'll keep throwing out those potential rationalizations to see when they get a bite. And once they get a bite and that person looks up, they enter their delirium and they start talking. Yeah. And so that's a really good way to get to the truth. Tell me how you feel about this one, because there's a difference between spotting a lie and getting to the truth. Those are two very different things, right? Very different. And in the interrogation mode, I've always had a rule, and I'm curious if you agree with this or have a better strategy, because I'm always looking to learn. But when I was working on interrogation, I always tried to keep the person from denying it. Because I was always afraid of them not having a face-saving way out. So if they started to say, I didn't, I'd, I would stop them. Maybe uh, I'd just say, Bob, I'd just stop them and do a monologue, do whatever. But I never let them deny it if I really thought they did it. That's classic law enforcement training. Absolutely. You never let somebody deny because the minute they do, you can't get them to move from that position. Yeah. So absolutely. You don't want to let them do that. It's called overcoming objections. You, know, you yeah. just overcome it. You know, they're just, wait a minute, let's go back. Let's talk one more time. Get as much rapport as you can with them. Now, law enforcement's a little bit different than a corporate environment or, you know, when you've got someone at home. So sometimes you can, when you're in a, a looser environment, let someone just let it rip and yeah. talk and hear what they have to say. Yeah. But if there's a crime that's been committed, you really do not want to let them deny because they'll, they won't move from it. Yeah. The, and nobody will confess in a crowd either. Right. I've learned that a yeah. long time yeah, ago. Yeah. Nobody wants to confess in a crowd. I don't care who it is. Now, talk to me about body language. We talked about verbal cues. What do you look for body language wise? Well, so... Again, I mean, we got a lot of myths about body language. So we think liar won't look you in the eyes. Honest person's only going to look you in the eyes about 60% of the time. You know, we think fidgety people are lying. That's not necessarily the case at all. They might have an itch. (laughs) They might be a fidgeter. So you got to know what someone's baseline is. We do know that when you ask questions and you start to drill down, if someone has been calm and all of a sudden they start fidgeting or We call it grooming gestures, dusting lint off their shoulders, twirling the hair with women, trying to kind of unconsciously leave the situation. We'll take barrier objects. They'll take a a bottle of water or an iPad and they'll kind of put it between themselves and the interviewer to give themselves a sense of safety. All that could be associated with deception. But I think the biggest tell with body language is simply the lowered voice and the slumping. For the most part, Most people, not everybody, because some people are very extroverted and they'll get even more animated when they're being deceptive. But for the most part, people will tone it down and dial it down almost as if they're trying to leave the room. So slump down, look away. So when you see that, that can be indicative of deception. That's a big one, right? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, again, it's hard to pick out every single indicator, but if someone's unconsciously trying to leave the situation, uh, particularly with kids and with teenagers, they will get more and more and more withdrawn Yeah, or they'll just revert to texting. (laughs) You're done. I'm not talking about it. (laughs) Slam the door. (laughs) Do you think they unconsciously point their feet towards the door? Oh yeah. (laughs) I I believe that. A good interrogator should always bring someone into a room where they can see the exit. So they feel comfortable because nobody wants to feel claustrophobic. Right. So you need people to be able to see an exit, but on the same hand, you don't want them to use it. Yeah. If there is, a way to make people feel comfortable in telling the truth, 
Is there a strategy that works better than something else? I mean, for me, I've always tried to keep them in a short-term time frame so they're not thinking about the consequences long-term. I mean, that's always worked for me. What's a good strategy to get people to tell the truth? So I think everybody should have like three or four questions in their pocket that really match their personality that helps someone get to the truth. I can tell you which, what my favorite questions are. I'd love to know what your favorite questions are as well. Of course, you want first to have a setting where nobody feels that you're looking down your nose at them right? because people are unbelievably sensitive to condescension. So by the way, you know, just because someone did something, you don't know why. So you should stay really curious. So be very, very careful about condescension in particular and about judging someone. But I have, I mean, so for example, at the end of every weekend, I say to my husband, I'm like, honey, what, what's the pettiest thing that's bothering you about this weekend? He will never tell me something petty, right? Cause you're signaling, you're saying, Hey, look, you can tell me anything. It doesn't matter. It can be the pettiest thing in the world. Tell me what it is. You're basically minimizing in some way to get someone to feel comfortable to tell you. He'll say, you know, we spent too much money at dinner on Saturday night. Well, that's not necessarily insignificant. I mean, you'll hear something that usually is a way in. If you're in an office situation, you say, what's the pettiest thing that's bothering you about the merger or about the reshuffling of, you know, our staff? Your employees are going to tell you something significant, even if you phrase it that way. So I think that's useful. I think it's also really, really important to let someone guide you through a conversation to say to them, you know, is there anything else you want to tell me? Usually people will tell you something significant. There are a lot of studies, particularly in a legal setting, where if you leave enough time to do that, they will tell you something significant if you're not judgmental and you do really seem sincerely interested in what they have to say. I also think signaling that you're fair makes a huge difference. You don't have to be hundred percent transparent. No one expects you necessarily to tell everything that you know about a particular situation when you're asking them questions, but you can signal that you're fair and you're not going to treat someone unfairly. It makes right. a huge difference. And with rapport, you know, in, in, in setting up a conversation where you really get someone to tell you the truth. So you have a lot of rapport. I think one thing that makes a difference is it's not about lavishing praise on someone. It's much more about genuinely being interested in what makes them tick. And if you are truly curious, they will sense that. And that will make a difference because everyone has a reason they did something. It is pretty interesting. So it's worth getting to the deeper questions as to why they may have done it. I have this belief that that last thing you said is, I think, so profound. I have this belief that people want to be heard, and even if they're in trouble, they want to talk. They want to be heard if they believe somebody is compassionate and will listen to them, even if they know they're in trouble. If they find somebody that will really listen to them and they think, this person cares about me, no, they're not going to judge me even if they're going to judge my behavior. I that absolutely agree with you. That really is the kernel that makes all the difference. Yeah. You said, what are my favorites? I really like to take people into hypotheticals. And when I was doing the trial work, I created what I call the Witness Bill of Rights because witnesses feel in a very compromised position. It's set up for them to feel that way. I mean, think about it. You come in. The judge is in a power position. He or she's in a robe. They're elevated. They've got a big seal behind them, yeah. flags on either side, armed guards there with them. 
the attorneys are dressed up. They stand up. They're calling each other by name. They know the court reporter's name. Hey, you know, Bob, Shirley, whatever. And the witness is in a box sitting there and they don't realize they have rights. And so I would teach them what their rights are to empower them. So you could turn Barney Fife into John Wayne once you mm-hmm. knew what their rights were. Uh, like they don't have to do hypotheticals, but I, I love to take people into hypotheticals and just say, look, help me understand how this could have gone for somebody. And I'm, I'm not even saying you, but hypothetically, if, it, if somebody, let's just hypothetically say you, were involved in this, how would this have gone down? Let's just play it out. And I'm not Again, hypothetically, it's astounding to me what they will now, because mm-hmm. it's kind of like OJ's book, If I Did It. It's like he wrote a confession and went back and put if in front of it. And it's astounding to me how much people will disclose. And and so I play the what if game. What if you did it? What would be the next step in getting this under control? I'm not saying you did, but what if? It's surprising how much people will tell you. It really is. What What's your view on baiting? Well, in a criminal situation, I like to use a mind virus an awful lot because, I mean, we think at 1,250 words a minute, we speak at 125, and I don't ever bluff because they call the bluff, you lose power. But I will say, is there any reason somebody might have told me you were around that desk where the petty cash drawer is? And, you know, if they're not there, if they weren't there, it doesn't take any time to say, absolutely not. If it takes them five to seven seconds to figure that out, they're running through the possibilities that somebody could have seen them. <laughs> yeah. It'll drive them crazy. That, to me, is a really big tell. So I love to bait them with a mind virus. And I've learned that is a very important tool. And I've learned to never, ever accept the first thing they confess. Because they don't ever tell you the worst thing first. If they tell you one thing, there's three more that are a whole lot worse. That's right. And any psychologist will tell you the same thing. It's not towards the end of therapy that you really get to the deepest yeah. issues. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. How do you bait people? Same way. There's a possibility there could have been a camera in the parking lot when that car was stolen. I don't know if there was one, but if there was one, is there any reason that blue car would have been seen being driven by you or anybody? It does start a mind virus. It is controversial in the corporate world to do that. Really? Yeah. Because it's considered disrespectful or potentially manipulative, but it does work in the right situation with the right person who's not coming forth, who is in some way passive aggressive or withdrawn and you can't get them to talk and you need to really start to, you know, jumpstart the conversation. Sometimes it does make a difference. Yeah. When you do these questionings in the corporate world, Is there a big challenge that you have to face with HR these days and the rights of the person? I mean, can you question people? You can question people. You can't polygraph them, except for in certain very specific situations. You can certainly question them. 
I think in the corporate world, it's changed. People are much more permissive now than they have been. There's a lot of political correctness around this for a long time. But now we have a big issue with inside threats. You know, we got the Ed Snowdens in the world that we have right. to find. And, you know, Ed Snowden was a social engineer. You know, he social engineered someone for their password. And so people need to understand that in lurking in most companies, oftentimes there is potentially someone who's going to exfiltrate the data and sell it to the competition and harm right. the assets. And most Corporate executives, particularly in the security side of a business, are very concerned about that now. So there's, it, we're, we're more permissive rather than less. Yeah. When you're talking about people now from inside an organization that can literally cripple an organization, cripple a country, when you go in to find that person and hopefully while they're in process instead of after the cat's out of the bag, if you don't have a target, how do you start to narrow it down before it happens? How do you start to use these tools for security rather than apprehension? Well, interesting, usually it's technology first. It's not human-centered first. So if there's an inside threat, you're going to see this on the infrastructure of the technology before someone is brought in to interview potential suspects. Right. But I'll tell you something interesting about inside threats. So there's technology out there now that will look at, for example, terabytes of data of someone's emails, and they'll look at patterns that may indicate that someone is an insider. And we know, for example, that inside threat actors are oftentimes disgruntled employees. They are oftentimes under financial duress as well, but disgruntlement tends to be a very, very strong indicator that somebody could potentially be an inside threat actor. Do you know what the one word, when you look at people's emails over huge numbers of emails that is highly associated when seen in frequency, what that one word is that's associated with an inside threat actor? Do you know what the one red flag is? Can you guess? No, but I want to know. <laughs> me. I can't believe they did this to me. I can't believe the boss is doing this to me. I can't believe this happened to me. Really? When you see that. Now, you can't go analyze someone's. We're not talking about printing out 15 emails of your boss. We're talking right. about terabytes of data being analyzed by a complex algorithm. Right. But we're starting to see, you know, a shift in the workplace around the technology and the ability to surface some of these threat actors. Yeah. When we were looking for this kind of thing, if it was someone that was stealing intellectual property or in some way compromising security, we had a cluster of things that we always looked at. And one of them was someone that was paid directly as opposed to direct deposit. They wanted their money on payday. They got their money right then because what we found out is that these people were desperate for money. They were living so hand to mouth, they couldn't allow the money to go into the bank because it would be hit by creditors. I mean, the instant it was there, it would be gone. So they couldn't have that. They had to be paid directly. And I mean, it was astounding what percentage of the time those people that got paid directly were involved in breaches in security or theft. Yeah, it's, it makes sense. But oftentimes people are too politically correct in the workplace to kind of keep an eye on what the people around them are, what their situation is financially. But it's important information to have. You're involved in a company now that is really focused on 
deception and deception detection and the next generation of what's going on here. Talk about that some. So I sit on the advisory board of a company called Converis, and this company is, I think, totally disrupting the polygraph business. They have a technology that is very mature now. It's um, hitting, you know, governments all over the world and many large companies. Uh, It is an ocular measurement system. You know, when you wire somebody up for a polygraph, they're covered with wires. It's very invasive. It can be intimidating. And the polygraph examiner can just change the questions on the fly. And so it is subject to bias. It's expensive. And as you know, it it can be very reliable, but it also is not admissible in court. This technology is disrupting it because it's computerized, it's scalable, it's inexpensive, and it's accurate. And you can't game it. You know, it looks at ocular measurements that are autonomic, autonomic biometric measurements. So it's not gameable. So it's an interesting, very, very interesting technology. Um, When coupled with a polygraph, you get incredibly high levels of confidence in terms of whether or not somebody's lying. Um, And it's very accurate on its own as well. How reliable is a polygraph in your opinion? Not in your opinion. What's the research show? I mean, I don't know the exact number today because there've been a lot of studies, but I think the polygraph is reliable as can be very reliable, but it really depends on the examiner. Right. As you know, there are great examiners who've been doing it for years, who have amazing on the ground knowledge and can really work in a scientific way. And then there are others who cannot. And so it's inconsistent. If you do a one issue, two question polygraph by someone that follows the protocol, has the charts blindly read by a second examiner, you can get up into the 90s, right? And tell me about this ocular. How does it work? What's the experience of the subject? What do they do? So the experience of the subject is, is pretty simple. You're just looking into an eye tracker on a computer. So it's very non-invasive. You just look into it and ask you a bunch of questions and it's tracking what's going on with your eyes as you're answering them. Okay. Is it tracking eye movement or is it tracking dilation and movement or both? both? both. Really? It's tracking, I think, over 75 different um, ocular measurements. Oh, shit. And so, yeah, it's... Um, so you, if you think about the future, you know, we've got facial recognition, AI, ocular measurements. So the business of deception detection is truly in the middle of disruption. I mean, there are technologies out there being used in China where you can say, let's find one person in the city of Beijing. And 15 minutes later, given the cameras that are all over the city and facial recognition, that person can be found. And yeah. so that's, you know, that's an amazing, here's a picture. Who is this? That person can be found. We're about to enter just a whole new era. So as much as I love deception detection from the human side, I think we cannot reject the technology because I think the technology is going to be incredibly effective. Yeah. That's pretty scary too. Yeah. I mean, all this facial recognition and the cameras, I know like in, in London, for example, I mean, the cameras are everywhere. Is and it's apparently going to be the same way in China or already is. Right. And we have the further problem of the kind of deep fake, because what if the cameras are wrong? Yeah. And we're relying on this as solid evidence now. And we're now seeing that you can create fake videos. You can create fake images that look identical and look accurate, but aren't necessarily. So it's early days. We got a lot, a lot of work to do around it. So what's the name of this company? Uh, called Converis. And the technology is called iDetect. iDetect. Okay. And is this available? It's available. 
So this is being used now. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not a consumer product. It's really a, a business to business product. Right. We can try it on the show. It'd be fun. Yeah. Th- yeah. I don't want to try it on me, <laughs> but we'll get some fool. <laughs> we'll get someone. We'll get some fool to step up there and answer some questions. And is it a multi-question technology? Single topic and multi. Really? Both ways. Yep. Wow. So that's really interesting. We should do this on the show. We should have somebody come in where we know the facts. Right. And not something silly, but somewhere we know the facts Mm -hmm. and have have them do it. Do it with ID Tech. Do it with Polygraph. Do it. You and I can look at them. We, could do, oh, we should do it. We should yeah. just run the whole gamut. Be great. So, is it expensive? It's inexpensive, scalable, and I think uh, this is really the future of lie detection. This is where it's going. Yeah. And so you're working with these people. Yeah, I'm on the advisory board. I looked at all the technology that's out there, and I found them um, because I really think it's the next. It's it's the next technology. It's the most developed. It's the they've been absolutely absolutely meticulous on the science. Yeah. And that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Should people, you know, you were talking about everybody has so much going on and it's, it's hard to really be trained, but should people study enough? I mean, should they go to your Ted talk, which has been viewed by almost 20 million people now. And it's one of the top 10 Ted talks of all time. And I highly recommend people view it, not just view it, but really study it because you've got so much information in, I mean, you really had to think through that. You got so much information in 20 minutes. It's mind boggling. But should people, should parents, should small business owners go to the trouble to try to learn at least the rudimentary Skills of lie detection, lie spotting? I think they should. And I'll tell you why. It's not like we're going to run out and we're going to go liar, liar, pants on fire. Let's point the finger at everybody out there. But think about it. You study piano, you study clarinet, you study violin. And what happens? You develop a much greater appreciation for music. You study lying and you start to understand it. It imparts in you an appreciation for who to trust. And that's significant. And it can really change your life. If you really start to think through where should your relationships be? Who's important to trust? How do you want to build the infrastructure of trust around you? That's significant. So it's really not about learning the tells. It's really about thinking through what role is trust going to play in your life and how you're going to create that circle of trust around you that's going to give you the support that you need. I think that's a good way to say it. And I, I think this too, if you said it earlier, you have to be very careful. And I always tell people, you said it really well when you said you have to get a baseline. And I also think you have to look at these things in clusters just because somebody says, oh, I swear to God, I didn't. If they're doing that along with grooming and they're doing and, you know, you get four or five of these things that occur in clusters several times during a conversation about a topic, then, okay, maybe you're starting to see something. But where I think it's important is it puts you on alert, You can't do this where you say, okay, I've decided this person's a liar. I'm going to fire them, divorce them, or cut them out of my life. But it might tell you this is somewhere that I need to do some research. This is somebody that I do need to put on my watch list. And so I do need to find out if they're doing A, B, C, or D. I don't trust myself enough to 
conclude that they're a liar or they're victimized me in some way, but I'm going to watch. I'm going to gather some research and find out. That's where I think it's important. I agree. And, you know, we, we see this a lot with, we train people in facial microexpression analysis. And so people throw off contempt a lot, which is a kind of asymmetrical sneering, like, you know, yeah. and yes, it's associated with deception, but we always tell people that's not the important thing. The important thing is that you're just got a signal for where there's repair work you got to do. You're on alert, yeah. as you said. So if, if you can take what you learn with lie detection into a deeper realm and really let it inform the way you're going to live your life, it can give you a lot of freedom. Yeah. yeah. And that's the only asymmetrical emotion. Yeah. Spatially. Exactly. The, the Dick Cheney. Exactly. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. That's the only one. Yeah. Um, everything else is is symmetrical. I, I wrote a book called Life Code, and I have a section in it about benefit of the doubt because I was raised in the South in Southern Baptists, and we were taught you give people the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. which I think is insane. Why would you give somebody the benefit <laughs> of the doubt? Th- that To me, that just seems insane. Why don't you just say, I'm, I come in neutral, and I'm going to start gathering data. And when I have enough data to make an informed decision, then I'll make an informed decision. But I'm not going to give somebody the benefit of that or decide that they're the devil uh, in blue jeans. I'm going to gather data until I can figure it out. Well, that's exactly where people get misjudged, where people think that people who are out there doing lie spotting are really cynics and they're not. Because really, that's the difference. It's fine to have a stance, I'm going to pursue facts and not people. And I'm going to just, I'm not going to give the benefit of the doubt. Oftentimes people mistake that for cynicism and it's not cynicism. No. Cynicism is when you've just rolled your eyes and decided that person, you've discarded them. You've sort of, you're morally superior in some way. Yeah. But, and that's dangerous, but I don't think it's dangerous to say, I'm going to pursue the facts. And when we get there. Yeah. Cause I'm not a cynic, but I, I don't give people the benefit of the doubt. Exactly. In fact, I think I trust people based on how much I trust myself to deal with whatever they do. Hmm. Like I was buying an airplane one time from a guy that was so crooked. He had to screw his socks on in the morning. I mean, (laughs) honest to God, this guy, he could not tell the truth. And my friends were saying, why would you buy an airplane from this guy? I said, I I don't trust him. I trust me to verify everything he says, get an independent evaluation. I trust me, not him. I don't care what he says. It's like I'm buying it from a bush. I don't care what he says. I I assume that the wings are going to fall off. I am checking everything out. I don't care what he says. They, They were like, oh, I get it. People say, I'm reluctant to fall in love. I don't want to get my heart broken. Well, then you don't trust yourself to be able to handle that. I always always say, however much you trust yourself is how much you can trust other people. So I'm not a cynic. I don't say don't give people benefit of the doubt because of I, I think people are inherently bad. I just say gather the data. Right. And then when you do trust them, it's a much more solid form of trust. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I know. So you're better off in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we form opinions of other people the same way we form opinions of ourselves. We watch what we do. Do you know who Ron White is, the comedian, the blue collar comedy comedian? Yeah, he's not your type, I can tell. <laughs> uh, but he says, he, he says, you know, I'm, he's been married about 10 times. Not true. I, I know, Ron. I know you're listening. But he's been married. More, he said, if he got married again, I should take my wedge out of my golf bag and hit him in the head with it. Uh, 
but he says, you know, I, he says, I need to have sex at least every two, three weeks, or I'm going to go out and find it somewhere. I know I've seen me do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Distancing uh, language. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, you attribute characteristics to other people based on your observations, Absolutely. right? If you have somebody that shows up every day at work 15 minutes early, they're all organized and buttoned up, you attribute to him or her, that person's buttoned up. That's what I mean about collecting data. And we form opinions of ourselves the same way. You watch what you do, how you handle situations, and you say, I'm competent to handle this. So I do think people should figure out how to spot whether people are lying or not. And they're not going to be experts at it, but you've given some really good things here about, well, first off, to summarize what you're talking about, everybody lies. And so that means everybody's getting lied I'll to. I'll talk to you yep. next week. You've been lied to today, right? Oh, of course. And I've been lied to. You've been yeah. lied to. You guys have been lied to. It doesn't necessarily mean somebody was trying to victimize us, but they no. just lied. No, I mean, look, the country's in the middle of a deception epidemic. This, yeah. That's really the, the truth. Our, we have lost trust in our major institutions. The media is in its own bubble. Our politicians, we feel like we can't trust. You know, we've got you know, a perfect storm out there and, and nobody's talking to each other face to face. You know, we're really very digital in terms of how we're communicating. And so we've got an epidemic and this is a postmodern skill for navigating it. Well, I got to ask you a psychological question here and then I promise I won't keep you. Well, that might've been a lie. I don't know. <laughs> it depends on what your question was. Now you've got me paranoid. Okay. Well, this is the lie expert on the globe here. So, all right. Do you think that if you've got someone that is a personality disorder, they are a malignant narcissist. They are someone that is just really full of themselves to the point that they just don't have an edit button. They're not able to pump the brake. They don't have impulse control. And so they just don't filter what they say. Is that lying if they believe it when they say it, or would they flatline a polygraph? Would they get past you or me because they believe what they say at the time or really don't care if it's true or not? Would those people get past a polygraph or a lie detecting expert like you? So that's a really good question. Thank you. I think that the actual percentage of people for whom that psychopathy is that extreme is tiny. And so we attribute sociopathic behavior to a lot of people who are really not sociopathic. So the person who really deeply, truly believes that they, whatever it is, they believe their own BS. No, they're going to, they could pass a polygraph. They would be hard to detect, but the other 99.9% of them, you and I could get them to tell you the truth because we would raise the cognitive load We'd throw them off. We'd come in with questions they weren't expected. We'd ask them and tell their story backwards. We'd observe when they had what we call post-interview relief, that, you know, exhaustion, the relief when they think all the hard questions are asked. So it's really on the interviewer. It's really on the interviewer to come in prepared. Most of those people can be thrown and can, you can elicit the truth from them. Okay. Tell, so the listeners understand, tell them exactly what you mean by raise the cognitive load. We haven't defined your term for the so term yet. When you're trying, you know, when you're trying to think what to say, act composed, appear spontaneous, when you're in the middle of a lie, you got a lot going on with your brain and the load on your brain is so high 
that's when you're going to leak these verbal and nonverbal indicators of deceit. And so a good interrogator, a good interviewer very, very subtly raises the cognitive load on their subject bit by bit and kind of watches them squirm. And that's what it means when you make someone squirm. Yeah. So, you know, someone who believes their own BS, you can raise the cognitive load on that person. You can start to ask them questions they didn't expect and you will find that they didn't quite believe it. Right. Do you agree with that? I mean, I'm curious what you think. No, I think, I think that's exactly right because, and it goes along with having them tell their story out of sequence Mm -hmm. Uh, because a liar, uh, particularly if you're getting them close to the event that they're lying about, Mm -hmm. if they've rehearsed their lie, it's like a waiter giving the specials for the day. And, you know, if you interrupt the waiter in the middle of their spiel, they have to go back and start over. (laughs) Right? Exactly. They they can't start in the middle. It's like, try to tell somebody your phone number from the middle. You can't do it. They got to go back and say, okay, no, no, no. I got to go back to the beginning here because I know it, but I only know it from the start. And if they try to go from the middle, they're all screwed up. So if you can interrupt them or have them say, let's work backwards here. I mean, you just start seeing steam come out of their ears because they can't do it. And raising the cognitive load, if you can have them explain something or give an explanation for why something else happened while this was happening, then they start to go into meltdown. And that's a problem for them. And I I just wanted people to understand what we were talking about because we hadn't talked about that before. But now I will say this, um, because I work with a lot of people, not a lot of people, but I more frequently, I bet than most people that are in fact delusional. Yeah. And when I say delusional, I mean, they have a delusional system worked out that is impenetrable. Mm. And I mean, I've had people that say I'm, they've bugged me. Who's they? Well, you know, really? I don't know. But they say, I will prove it to you next Mm -hmm. time I come to see you. I'm going to bring you some of those bugs. And they will walk in and empty their pocket or their purse, and they'll throw out the top to this and that and a coin and say, It's real. What do you think of me now? And I'll guarantee you they won hundred percent believe pass. yeah and they'll pass that 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 those are bugs they found them and I can kiss their ass right I mean what do you think now you thought I was making all this up there you have it and I worked with this really brilliant woman for a year when I was in private practice and convinced her it was not true and I saw her a month later and I said how you doing she said great I did cut all the wires to my intercom system. <laughs> But other than that, I'm fine. And she really was doing okay, but just belt and suspenders. I did cut all the wires to us. Self-awareness. Oh, my God. God. Another great victory for Dr. Phil. (laughs) But they will will straight line a polygraph, right? I think so. I don't know for sure, but I think so. Yeah, I tell you, they... They're not trying to gain anything. They're not trying to manipulate anybody. They're not trying to escape anything. It's just real. It's just their their reality. And that's, that's a problem. And that's different than a narcissist who just doesn't read the room 
right. doesn't realize that right. this isn't going over. Exactly. But you start challenging them and they come apart like a cheap Correct. suit. And that's very different. So what's next for you? So what's next is that um, I'm writing a new book and it is about the lies all over our country, not just lies between human beings, problems that we have in the world of science and in the world of sports and in the world of business. So it's about, you know, an entire, the, the sort of deception epidemic that we, that we're seeing culturally. Yeah. Um, I'm doing a lot of speaking as you can imagine and yeah. a lot of training and my business does a lot of training. We train a lot of private equity firms and law firms and we work all over the world with um, some really interesting executives yeah. and fun. That's the other thing that's, that's, it's just fun. You know, I mean, I think people are absolutely fascinating and this is just a way in. It's a really, really interesting way in to understand human beings. And so we laugh all, you know, we have so much fun in my office. We just, we, we love what we do. It's, yeah. it's just huge fun and it's fascinating. Very it interesting. fascinates me. So when yeah. does the new book come out? Uh, not for a while. Not for a while. Uh -huh. We're in the, I'm in the midst of it. So. Okay. Well, when it comes out, I hope you'll let me know because I'll certainly launch it for you on Dr. Phil. Yeah, that'd be awesome. If you'll let me know. And I would love to test all of this uh, technology that you're talking about to do a demonstration of that. So that would be huge fun. We should, yeah. we should talk about that. Yeah, That'd be go great. back and tell your people okay. that uh, we'll do a, a demo on the show and, and demonstrate that. Cause I think that's amazing advance in technology, particularly if you stack the technologies then it's really belt and suspenders. So is there anything we haven't talked about that we should? No, I think, you know, you are so well-versed in deception detection. You are the master. So I think we've covered it. No, <laughs> I, I really do. No, I'm talking <laughs> to the master. No, I think, I think you're the master. But you, no. this has been huge fun. Well, it has for me, too. And I, when I decided to do this, she'll tell you, you were my first call. Oh, thank you. Because I'm really fascinated by what you do and how well you do it. And we have to do this again because... I think when people hear this, they're going to want to hear more. So we're going to have to go into more details. That's so awesome. will you come back and do this again? Absolutely. All do right. it tomorrow. And we'll do the show, which is just on the other side of the, yeah, of the wall fun. here and okay. with the technology. So tell them you got that set up. All right. Thank you so much. This has been huge fun. I appreciate fun. it. Thank Thanks. You. All right. Bye-bye. Find Fill in the Blanks in your podcast app. Then subscribe so you don't miss an episode.